0: Right. you can make your way to your seats at this time. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, for those who are newer today, um, my name is Joshua Sarita. I serve here as one of the deacons at Christ Community Church. Um, and it is a joy to be providing God's Word this morning, preaching God's Word this morning. It's always a privilege to open up God's Word. And um, in this this morning, I feel particularly hungry for, for Jesus, um, desperate for Jesus. Maybe you're like me, um, just in light of uh, a week of, uh, of just facing sin and temptation, uh, it's good to know that the sermon that I've prepared hasn't been just merely for speaking's sake, but for my own soul. Uh, and I think that's one thing I really appreciate about in the preparation of God's Word, is just it's for myself first, um, and I hope that you are also blessed by it. Um, so let's just open up our Bibles together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 106. For those who don't know, uh, we have been going through a, a sermon series of seeing Christ in all of Scripture. And we've been starting, we started in Genesis. We're making our way uh, through numbers. And in small little pockets, we've kind of just dropped, almost kind of pin dropped into particular areas of kind of greater focus, if you will. And so last week, uh, Ethan Prouse preached from Exodus 15, the Song of Moses, and today I'll be preaching from Psalm 106. really hones in on a lot of events that take place within the Old Testament, particularly in Numbers. And as you're turning to Psalm 106, uh, I just want to share how thoroughly grateful I am for my wife. She is not here this morning. She's currently away at her uh, mother's 60th birthday party. Um, Someone's probably going to tell me, like, well, like, Josh, why aren't you there? That's like a big no-no. You got to be at your mother-in-law's 60th birthday party. and. Well, like, uh, I I knew about this first, so I wanted to be faithful to it. But she's there. She misses you guys. Um, Now, one thing I've learned about Yuba is that she's very kind. And one way that she shows kindness is preparing and packing lunch for me and for both of us every day before work. Uh, Usually this occurs in the morning when she's making her cappuccino with the froth, the milk. Great. And during one particular lunch... um, I began to eat a tuna fish sandwich that she had made, I love tuna fish, Uh, and all seemed perfectly normal except for just one bite, one bite. Um, This one bite contained an unexpected but very familiar texture. And as I reached for my my mouth and my lips, I, I had the pleasure of pulling out a very, very long strand of hair. And I don't know if, um, maybe hair and your food doesn't displease you. Maybe you see it as a weird thing that you enjoy. But in that moment, I know for me, I had absolutely no pleasure in eating, uh, regardless of whether it was my wife's hair or not. Um, I mean, I don't know if you have your respecters of hair or partial to hair, but I know uh, regardless of what it is, uh, it's still hair. And so the perfectly good and whole sandwich that Luba had made would have quite honestly just gone to waste, but... um, I realize that you know I'm hungry. You know, as a teacher, I walk around all day. I need to. I need nourishment. I need to be fed. Uh, and if not, then my students will see it. And so, in light of my need and my uh, need to fill my stomach, I was able, in fact, to finish it. Um, for that split second, I couldn't see past the offense on my taste buds, and yet I went in after. Okay, threw it away. It's gone. In Psalm 106, we see the pleasing, steadfast love of God on display for us to enjoy. But sandwiched between two hearty reminders of God's goodness, we see a dissatisfying lament over sin. In fact, the sin of Israel in the Old Testament takes up the vast majority of this psalm. But the Lord would want to remind us this morning that we should not focus on the abundance of sin and faithlessness, but rather the abundance of grace and God's faithfulness. In other words, we shouldn't be so fixed on our sin problem that we run from the pleasure available found in Christ. And this is a long chapter, um, so we're just going to dive straight in. Psalm 106, beginning at verse 1, it's approximately 48 verses, so again, follow along as best as you can. Um, Let's start. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. O oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his, all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one was left. Then they believed his word. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his work. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanting craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but then sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the holy one of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered up the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and the flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. Having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the land. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. Whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He had abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times, He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us. O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. The title of the message today is God is Faithful Even When We Are Faithless. Let's let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. God, you are good and we are not. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and allow us to see your faithfulness in Psalm 106. May we rejoice this morning as you make us Christ-focused rather than sin-focused. Help us to focus on you dying for our sins and washing all of our sins away. And may your church, be edified by the preaching of your word. Grant any unbeliever here repentance and faith also by the preaching of your word so that you would be glorified and we would be satisfied. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Just some context before we dive in. This uh, psalm is formerly known as a historical psalm. Essentially just it contains a, a, a Uh, a a large bit of history that takes place within the Old Testament. Again, many of these uh, events took place within the book of Numbers, often a book that we shy away from. But as we've seen in this series, uh, the Old Testament is not something to shy away from. It's not just an ancient literature made by man. It is inspired, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this particular psalm, this historical psalm, is a lament over the sin of Israel. And while the examples of sin flood this chapter, the steady... Covenant, keeping, faithful love of the Lord is what's most important here. As we heard from Ethan last week, just talking about God's hesed, his steadfast love, you can count on it being there. And within the book of Psalms, we see this. We also just see this within the entirety of scripture. You can't go through the scriptures and see that the God of the Old Testament is any different than the God of the New Testament is one God, three persons. There is no distinction, as some might assume. So we're going to just cover three points today. First is humble worship. The second is Israel's rebellion. And the third is God's faithfulness. Humble worship, Israel's rebellion, and God's faithfulness. So let's just dive in again, starting with verse one, humble worship. The psalmist begins uh, with a call to worship with, with two imperatives. The imperatives are just commands that are given, things we ought to do. And the first is, you can see in verse 1, praise the Lord. You can see that Lord is in all caps. We learned about this last week with Ethan. Um, the phrase praise the Lord broken down, in, is originally broken down into two words, the first being halal and yah. So halal, yah, meaning praise, and then a shortened version of the name Yahweh, so praise Yah or praise Yahweh, and that's where we get our modern ver- uh, word hallelujah from. And so if anybody says hallelujah around you, often it's saying, like, thank goodness. But in reality, they're really praising Yahweh, just inherently by them saying that. It's a great conversation starter, by the way. So that first is the first imperative, to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. The second is to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And this phrase is not simply a passing thank you like when someone opens a door, like, oh, hey, thanks. Or, um, hey, thanks, appreciate that. This is a means of seeing reverence and worship. Not our equivalent to our thanks when we say thank you. Now, what are the reasons why the psalmist gives us, a, you know, what are the reasons why we must pray or revere or praise Yahweh? He gives it later. We see it's that he is good. And again, the the English language doesn't do this word justice because it's not the same as when we answer someone, asks us, hey, how are you doing? And we say, oh, good. Um, it means that he is holy, that he's set apart. He's the standard of goodness. He's morally excellent. And not only that, that his steadfast love or hesed endures forever. He's faithful to keep his covenant. And these very attributes of God being good and God having steadfast love ought to lead us in awe and reverence because they, goodness, holiness, moral excellence, are not found inherently with the hearts of people. They're not found within us inherently. It leads the psalmist to ask a rhetorical question in verse 2. Who can even utter or list the mighty acts of God, the wonders of God? Who can even do it? Is it possible? You couldn't praise him enough. And that's why Sunday morning isn't meant to be some isolated church event. We often use the phrase, I'm going to church. Biblically speaking, we are the church. We gather together. And the assembly of believers falls within the natural flow of worship from now into eternity. It's just a continuation, not just an event on a Sunday. Romans 14, 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. And if you're a Christian today, this morning, you have much to praise the Lord for. And we see, as this psalm continues in verses 3 to 5, that there's this humble outworking of the psalmist thinking, Uh, in light of these truths, in light of God God and who he is. And it's so important, guys, uh, at church, that we understand who God is uh, in light of everything that we do. In verse 3, the psalmist declares that the people experience true joy when they deal with people justly and do what is right. But why? Why is that? Because the very essence of true justice And we know that we've seen plenty of injustice within our nation, our history. But the very essence of true justice and righteousness stems from God's character. To experience true joy is to obey the Lord, not a drudgery. It's a delight. John 15, 10 says, if you keep my commandments, Jesus saying this, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that you're... That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There is true joy that comes from obeying God. The world wouldn't have us believe that. The world would have us to believe that following Jesus is all about rule keeping. That's not biblical. It's not about following the law. It's trusting the one who kept the law for us on our behalf. Later in verses 4 and 5, we see how the psalmist recognizes the distinctive benefits from being a part of God's family. And you, I'm, again, I... For anyone who knows me, I'm a huge fan of repetition. So if you look in verses four through five, you'll see this combination of some type of benefit along with your and then like a statement about God's people. So the first we see is favor to your people when you save them, prosperity to your chosen ones, gladness to your nation and to glory with your inheritance. And for those who have repented and and put their faith and trust in Jesus, we are his possession forever. And earlier, when the psalmist writes, this this is, I found this to be interesting. Uh, When the psalmist writes, remember me, it does not imply that God forgets. God doesn't forget things. He's all knowing. Why would the psalmist ask him to be remembered? Well, it shows the humility as we approach the God who really doesn't have a reason to remember us. Scripture makes it clear that the song Unforgettable, Unforgettable by Nat King Cole does not apply to us. Unforgettable, that's what you, that's what we're not. Our rebellion before and after salvation would lead anyone else to forget us quite easily. If you think about your own soul and, and, and the wrong that you've done over a lifetime, I mean, think about it. You may be married right now, but you haven't been married to your spouse forever but you know your spouse probably knows you better than anyone else. But imagine seeing you from birth to where you are now and enduring every bit of rebellion that you have committed against the Holy God. Like, imagine that. And then multiply that by every single person that exists. I mean, that type of forbearance and, and grace, Sure. I think we would want to forget those who sin against us every single day and maybe don't even ask for forgiveness. Just don't care. (laughs) We agree with Psalm 16, which Steve actually read this morning. Praise God. I had this already here. When it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The world says you're awesome. The world says I'm awesome. And God's word says you're not awesome. God is awesome. To be feared over and over again. To be constantly feared as Ethan talked about yesterday. We are not to be constantly feared. We have nothing in us that would give us that type of reverence. We do not fall into God's favor because of how many times we come to church. Or how we treat our spouse or children. If we can memorize scripture. I don't fall. We don't fall into God's unmerited favor because of those things. Rather we do it because of what Christ has done on the cross. To die for sinners who have repented in humility. God is faithful even when we are faithless. Point number two, Israel's rebellion. In light of initially seeing the humble worship of our good God, our good, holy God, we we see how awful sin really is. In light of God's goodness, we see how when, when that standard is dropped, how awful it is. And within this lengthy section of scripture, we see example after example of Israel's sin. And a question to ask ourselves is, well, What's the kind of common denominator of this rebellion? What is the, really, the underpinning of all this stuff that they're doing against God? What's the big deal? The big deal is that they, and we can put ourselves in this category, we don't want to remove ourselves from this, that they, within their rebellion, disbelieve in God's goodness. And that leads to pride against the God of the universe and then independency. This is kind of classic Genesis 3, that they seize an opportunity to deny God's goodness and say, man, you know, when the serpent said, did God really say, sowing a seed of doubt, to be like, actually, I don't think God is actually that good to me. I think I can figure out how to do this on my own. I think I'm going to create my own standard of goodness and truth. That's the, that's the heart of men. We uh, we despise authority at times. And in essence, essentially what the people of Israel were doing was saying, God, you're not good and we have to find our own way. When I was in school, and I know teens and, and children, you'll enjoy this. When I was in school, I was somewhat of a perfectionist. I didn't get my first B until I was like in 10th grade. Okay, so I was like all this high flyer, I'm on top of things. I was very much a perfectionist. And sometimes uh, I would have to ask my dad for help. At the time, I was especially not as uh, technologically savvy. You know, he was a he was a kind of a master of Microsoft Word 97. Um, he was 94. Can't remember. Um, either way, it was great. Floppy disks were awesome. And so uh, sometimes I would have to ask my dad for help. But there were certain moments where, when he would try to help me, I would go against him because I was convinced that he was trying to sabotage my assignment. And I would say things along the lines of, you're going to mess it up, dad. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't, 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 do, don't do that. Come on. Like, what are you doing? And he'd was like, Joshua, relax. Like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm trying to help you. And I'm like, no, like, let me just do it. Let me just do it. Let me, like, just move, move, move. And I would say things like that to my dad. Arrogant. Like, <laughs> um, I was, I was, I was, Questioning my, God, my my dad, being in favor or for me, I didn't think he was. I, I don't think I didn't think he was actually doing things for my good. I thought he was trying to mess up, and I was trying to keep it together. So I found my own way to do things. Have you ever said that in your heart to God? I know I have. God, you're not good. You're messing it up. I need, I, like, leave me alone. I want this piece of my life to be like this, and you're not allowing me to do that. I gotta find my own way, God. We might not say it with our mouths, but we do say it with our hearts when we try to have a little sliver of control when God's not working as efficiently as we, I hope. The psalmist allows us to see how arrogant sin is after showing us the benefits of humble worship. We see seven examples. There are a lot of examples. I'm trying to go through them quickly, a lot of which we touched already on through our numbers, kind of uh, our series right now. So the first example is the red sea in verses seven and nine this is cross reference to exodus 14 and the problem that the people of israel are facing was fear okay so they just got out of egypt they're by the red sea and after performing 10 plagues against the egyptians they start questioning moses and saying like you brought us out here to what die like what's wrong with you we often look at the old testament and say if i was there and i saw all those things i would believe these people, clearly in Scripture, did it. They doubted God, even after performing ten plagues against the Egyptians and, and removing them from this land and slavery. So that was, again, doubting the goodness of God, leading to unbelief and pride and saying, we, 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 let's do something. Eventually, God did show himself to be powerful, and we, we read about that in the Psalm of Moses last week. The second example is the wilderness cravings at Kibroth Hateava, which is a cross reference to Numbers eleven and fourteen. And they put God to the test. We learned about this when, when CB was preaching, how they were like, Hey, we're sick and tired of all this manna. Let's get let's get some meat. I want meat. Sick and tired of having to make all this stuff. And so he gave them plenty of meat. We learned millions of millions of pounds of meat, so much so that they got sick of it. Again, doubting God's goodness. Got to find a way. We've got to to make something happen because God's not doing it. The third example, Dathan and Abiram, seen in verses 16 and 17. The problem was envy and jealousy as well as strife. And so uh, Dathan and Abiram uh, is formerly known as Korah's Rebellion. Uh, it's, It's a group of about 250 People who rose up against Moses and Aaron, who were the appointed leaders at the time, and they were like, again, you're not getting it done. We're going to die out here, okay? Yeah, so what? You're appointed by God. I don't care because I don't want to die. Not getting it done. You're not getting it done. We need to find our own way, doubting the goodness of God. The fourth example, the golden calf, the infamous golden calf, which is known not only by Christians, but in many cases just in pop culture, in verses 19 through 20. This is cross reference to Exodus 32. The problem that we have is this idolatry, literal, uh, literal image, metal image. And so the people are waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, and again, they say to themselves, we don't know what's become of this Moses. What happened to this guy? And so in their doubting of God's goodness and unbelief and pride, they decide to then create a metal image with a goal that was made with the people's jewelry, they exchange the glory of God for a created thing. Romans one. The fifth example is the, the spies from Canaan in verses twenty five, twenty four and twenty five. This cross reference to Numbers fourteen. Again, fear. They they go to the promised land that was again promised by God. Promised by God. <laughs> the God of the universe. And they look and they're like, We don't stand a chance. Yeah. Like, plagues, all that stuff. Yeah, we know you worked in mighty ways, God, but, like, these people were grasshoppers. We don't stand a chance. We're going to get slaughtered. We're going to get crushed. No chance. Doubting the goodness of God. And just leading to their own repentance. They're like, we might as well just not go. We might as well just not go. We might as well just stay here. We have a better chance, probably. Sixth example is the Baal of Peor, seen in verse 28, cross-reference to Numbers 25. Again, idolatry, food sacrifice to idols. And this happened when they were intermingling with the, the people of Moab. And so, you know, they think to themselves, hey, you know, what's the big deal? Connect with people who aren't a part of Israel? You know, God told us not to, but, you know, what, what's a little intermixing? No big deal, right? We're just We're just going to be friends. Maybe acquaintances. God made that very clear because the temptation to turn away from the God of Israel to these false idols was, was too much of a struggle for them. Again, doubting the goodness of God, that, that actually being separate from these people would be a good thing. And they engaged in, in idolatry and food sacrifice to idols. The final example is the waters of Meribah, seen in verses 32 to 33 cross-reference to Numbers 20, and the problem is they're complaining, complaining, again, wanting water, wishing we were back in Egypt to enjoy water. The irony that they rather have comfort as slaves and rather than a lack of water with freedom. Does it make sense to want to be a comfortable slave? Is that not the essence of an oxymoron? Moses disobediently then strikes the rock in fear. He people pleases. He's feeling the pressure. Again, maybe he's also doubting the goodness of God because it's like, yeah, these people need water. I got to do something about it. Boom, hits the rock. And water gushes, but then eventually consequences ensue. Doubting the goodness of God is not sufficient. Later in verses 34 to 43, we kind of just see a general pattern of rebellion. We even see in verse thirty. Thirty-seven, uh, sacrificing their own children to false gods of Canaan. Sacrificing children, this is like, I mean, you. I mean, like you think about sin is ugly, and when given the opportunity to doubt the goodness of God and unbelief and leading to independence, the heinous type of things that can take place within the human heart. Blood was spilled. In verse thirty-nine. There's really only one way to describe what the people of Israel have been doing. And it's compared to committing blatant adultery or even prostitution, spiritual prostitution. That's what it's compared to. You can read it for yourself. It's right there. Played the horror in their deeds. And I don't think that language probably even does it justice in the English. Point number three, God's faithfulness. In light of Israel's sin, we see God's faithful response to remain both just and gracious. So let's talk about God's just response to sin. Now, make no mistake about it, church. God takes sin very seriously. He takes my sin very seriously. Sin grieves the Lord. And he's provoked to a just and righteous anger, and we see this within verses 29. We see it in verse 32. We see it in 40. Repetition is key, not there flippantly. <laughs> to believe that God just says something along the lines of like, "Oh, you guys you just, oh, you're, that's not how God responds. God does not respond to our sin like how we look upon a young infant just doing something. With silliness, he is angered by it. There's a just and righteous anger. And there are multiple examples of him upholding his justice and executing judgment. In verse 15, he sends a wasting disease. In verse 17, he literally splits the ground open and people fall in. Again, this is not hard for the God of the universe. He created everything. It's no big deal. He can do that. In verse 18, fire breaks out among the people. In verse 29, a plague breaks out. In verses 32 to 33, in light of Moses' sin in striking the rock, he declares that they wouldn't enter the promised land. Ultimately, his generation, they would have to keep wandering until their children took over. And then in verses 41 to 42, we see that there's uh, oppressing and conquering nations. He allows them to fall into the hands of these other nations that are more powerful. Christian or not, please know that God will not turn a blind eye towards sin can't it's not in his nature and if you don't turn to christ in faith the just penalty for sin is death physically and spiritually in hell now our response to sin our prideful disposition may lead us to believe that that's not fair we often say that's a bit that's a bit harsh god right it's a bit harsh that you, you sent a wasting disease. You literally split the ground open. You sent fire. You allowed them to be conquered by these other nations. And you would send people to hell. But we must fight against our flesh's urges to minimize sin. And the resulting consequences. That's our tendencies. When we look upon someone, how could a, how could a, a quote, loving God send people to hell? Well, it's in his nature to uphold justice. And we have low views of sin often, thinking it's no big deal. If you think about this for a second, if you lie to maybe one of your children, they may or may not find out. If you lie to your spouse and they find out, big problem. If you lie to your boss, you may get fired. If you lie to the government, you may be incarcerated. How much more is the authority of God to be sinned against him and the standards to be held to? just infinitely. It's, it's, not, it's not the offense. It's, it's whom we offend. It's not the offense. It's whom we offend. And that's why God takes sin very seriously, because it's against his very nature. God's discipline of his children is important as a teacher in a middle school, I, I, you know, I just, I face a daily dose of flat out rebellion. I'm a middle school teacher. Okay. So if you know yourself where you were at middle school or you're a middle schooler right now, um, you know, that middle schoolers and teenagers, you know, they kind of like get into that phase where I'm going to see, like, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm kind of trying to be like an adult and I think I'm kind of cool. Um, so I'm going to try to like, you know, go against authority. It's, uh, I mean, I've just had kids just flat out yell at me and just not do what I'm, I'm expecting them to do. So if I care about my students, I have to discipline them. Because if I don't discipline them or say, or provide a consequence, I'm essentially saying, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing it. It's fine. I'm okay with it. I don't care about, I don't care about you. Keep destroying yourself with your insubordination. Who cares? God is the same way. He, he provides this this discipline and 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 he provides judgments for us to see that it's not okay it's not okay these things are not okay and does do my students responses indicate they appreciate it no of course not they, they, they don't appreciate they don't enjoy being disciplined we don't either hebrews 12 11 says no discipline seems enjoyable at the time but but painful later on however it yields A peaceful harvest of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's judgment on sin is a byproduct of his faithfulness to uphold justice. It's his faithfulness. I often think of God's faithfulness as just simply grace. But in fact, it is doing as he says he will do. Holding fast to his covenant and also holding fast to keeping justice where it remains. God is faithful even when we are faithless. When we turn blind eyes to things that we should say no to, God still upholds. Second piece in God's faithfulness is God's gracious response to sin. Within God's nature, God is both just and gracious. They're essentially two sides of the same sovereign coin, and there are multiple examples of God giving grace to, uh, to Israel that they didn't deserve. Okay, so again, if you feel free to look back. Verses eight to ten, it says that yet he saved them for his name's sake. Verse 43, many times he delivered them. 44, he looked upon their distress. 45, he remembered his covenant. 46, he caused them to be pitied. Then we have two key examples that prefigure Christ. Moses in verse uh, 23, who stood in the breach, and Phinehas, who stood up and intervened in verse 30. I'm just going to primarily focus on the example of Moses. So let me just read again, 21 through 23. This is, again, God's gracious response through the means of, of Moses, let them thank the Lord. Run the back. Sorry, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. God was intent on destroying the people justly for this their sin and rightly so had not moses his chosen one stood in the breach in isaiah 42 god's word says behold my servant whom i uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights i have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nation jesus the chosen one quotes the same verse about himself in Matthew 12. It's no coincidence. Jesus, the chosen one, entered his own wilderness led by the Spirit, just as the people uh, people of Israel did. You're going to love this, guys. This this is so awesome. This is so cool. Awesome. (laughs) Jesus is awesome. Jesus was tempted with pleasure and comfort from food. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He was tempted with worldly power and control. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He was tempted to put his father to the test. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And this is not to mention every single day outside of those 40 days that were in the wilderness. And we, church, we, are also in wilderness wanderings on our way to the promised land of heaven. Where you and I have failed, where you and I do fail, where you and I will fail, Jesus has succeeded. That was Christ's active obedience on your behalf, believer. On your behalf. God is faithful even when we, when we are faithless. Jesus, the chosen one, also endured the cross. He Stood in the breach, the gap between us and the just wrath each of us deserves in hell. He became sin and was forsaken on the cross. Jesus didn't just turn away the wrath of God, he absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross. This was Christ's passive obedience. He was broken for us how was god able to faithfully be just and gracious at the same time look no further to the cross of christ look no further than the cross of christ justice has been satisfied and grace is now available to those who would repent and trust in christ's sacrifice it's available it's it's, it's beautiful I can ask the, the worship team to come up at this time. Now our response, church, um, our response. Again, I don't know, um, I don't know what your sin struggles are. I don't I don't I don't know everyone here that intimately. But God would have us remember that God He is faithful if, even when we are faithless. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And our response to a just and gracious God of the universe is to not fixate on our sin, not fixate on our problem, not to be not to be drawn to hopelessness, neither self righteousness. I'm, man, I'm so you know, think about that analogy, like, man, I'm so caught up in just this, like, this hair that's in my sandwich right now. Like, I can't get over the fact that it's there, it's gross, I can't enjoy anything else. But also, that we need to recognize that there is a problem. We need to recognize that there is indwelling sin that we are dealing with, and that we should confess and repent of. But that because of Christ, uh, the just wrath of God fell on him rather than you, Believer. That if you are a Christian, you are a Christian and his possession until you see him one day. Until you reach the promised land. Our response to the God of the universe is humble praise. Come back. It goes back to the first point. Humble praise. I'm just going to read Psalm uh, 106, 46. I'm sorry, 48. Last last verse in the psalm said, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. The psalmist begins with praise. He ends with praise. We praise God for his justice and grace. And as Christians, we recognize that justice has been satisfied through Christ. And that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life dependent on God's grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. No works, no amount of self-righteousness that you could ever offer God to make him love you more. And there's no amount of sin that is too deep for God not to offer grace and forgiveness for you, believer. God is faithful even when we are faithless. Amen. Amen me just, uh, let me just pray for us. (laughs) Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. Um, God, I thank you for your promise. We thank you for your promise. God, it's so easy for us to listen to your word and not be affected by its truth to just skim over things and say, that's wonderful. It happened thousands of years ago. Who cares? But God, this word is living and active. It's profitable. and it allows us to see our need for you in light of ourselves, God, but so much so that you would send Jesus to die for sinners. We don't deserve it, God. That's why it's great. God, I pray for anyone here who isn't a Christian, those who would say, no, I don't need Jesus. I don't need any type of religion. I don't need that. I can find my own way. I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I pray that you would humble them, that you would that you would grant them repentance. God, we know it's not going to be because of circumstance that, uh, that, that causes us to repent. It's, it's, it's by your grace alone, it's through your Holy Spirit alone that, that allows people to see they need you. So we may we not get caught up in any way, especially for those who aren't Christians and, and wake up calls and, and things that are eventually going to keep our attention because it didn't work for the people of Israel because their problem was unbelief, not circumstance. So God, allow us all, including non-believer, believer alike, to see that we are, we need you, God. We desperately need you, Christ alone, through faith alone, grace alone. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.
1: God is faithful even when we are faithless. And um, what, a, what a good, solemn reminder it is to look once again at the sin of Israel and the sin of our own hearts, but as we do, to hear as the resounding theme over all of that, the faithfulness of God. To do justice in punishing our sin, but doing that graciously by sending his son to take our sin for us upon himself. I'm reminded of uh, one time I was having a conversation with, with our pastor CB, and um, in the midst of a trial, CB said to me, if God is so good to save my soul from hell, he surely got this. Church, I don't know what it is that you will face this week. If God is so good to save your soul from hell, and He is, He's got whatever it is that you face. You can trust Him. You can walk out of here in joy because His faithfulness is greater than our sin. It's greater than our faithfulness. Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Let us walk out from here in joy, brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.